When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. I'm Jared Halverson. Welcome back to Unshaken. Quick reminder that all of the audio files of these videos are now available on your favorite podcast platform. So if you prefer to listen on the go, then opt for that. And also that all of these videos are now uploaded to a Facebook page so that full-time missionaries who can't access YouTube can watch these and follow along for their Book of Mormon study. I'm so grateful for the enthusiasm out there to study the gospel of Jesus Christ as found in these incredible books of Scripture. And as we approach the end of the Book of Mormon this year, with Mormon and Ether and Moroni, there are still some incredible things for us to study together. Now, I want to start today playing a quick round of Name That Prophet, okay? See if you can figure out who I'm talking about. This prophet was large in stature. He had the same name as his father. The people in his time lived in a state of apostasy. In his mid-teens, he was visited of the Lord. A prophet came to him when he was young and told him of records engraven on metal plates that he had hidden in a hill. Is it starting to get a little bit more obvious? The prophet told him that he was to go to that hill when he was a little older in order to obtain the plates. In his early 20s, he finally received those plates. Later, he led his people as a prophet, as a military leader, as a record keeper. He tried to share with people part of the spiritual truths that he had learned, but the people hardened their hearts against him. He was forced by his enemies to leave his home and to move with his people from city to city to city. And at the end, his enemies finally succeeded in killing him. Now, if you thought Joseph Smith, you were right. All of those things apply to him. But I was actually talking primarily about Mormon. He's going to be our hero for the day. But all of those things apply equally to him. It's incredible to see the parallels between Joseph Smith and Mormon. And to me, the most important parallel is their time period what each of these two prophets was trying to lead their people through and prepare them for. Now, I've said this several times throughout these lessons, that the Book of Mormon, in many ways, is a scale model of the last days. Remember, war chapters, signs of the times, destruction of the wicked, the coming of Jesus Christ, and then this mini-millennium that we studied last week in 4th Nephi. And in a way, I think we kind of want to end the Book of Mormon there and end world history with the millennium also. Christ among us, total peace, no manner of ites, no division, no contention, no wickedness, bring it on. But that's not how the Book of Mormon ends. And that's not how the millennium ends either. At least, not for a little season. You see, the scriptures describe the millennium as a time in which Satan is bound. Children growing up without sin unto salvation. It's going to be a great time to be a parent, believe me. But in Revelation chapter 20, for example, right near the end of the New Testament, it describes that millennial reign of Jesus Christ, Satan having been thrown into the bottomless pit so that he cannot deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years are fulfilled. But then this, and after that, he must be loosed a little season. 
Later in the chapter, he repeats it. When the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. We get that sense in the chapters we'll be talking about today. Last week, we saw this mini millennium, 200 years of total peace, and then this gradual decline and descent back toward destruction. And that's where we pick up the story today. By the end of the chapters we study this week, the Nephite civilization has come to an end. And it doesn't end well. This is Satan being loosed for a season, which I've always scratched my head over. If we had him right where we wanted him, chained in that bottomless pit, why on earth would we ever let him out? Now in that same chapter, Revelation 20, we get a clue as to why. It talks about the resurrection of the just in verse 4. They lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But then it says in verse 5 that the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. So when Jesus talks about the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust in John chapter 5, we see both of those. The resurrection of the just at the beginning of the millennium and the resurrection of the unjust at the end. Now that's a little bit of an oversimplification, but I hope it makes a little bit more sense to us that at the end of the millennium, when the wicked, the unjust, are resurrected, no wonder the adversary is loosed for a little season because there are finally people back on the earth that would give him power because they listened to him. Remember at the end of 1 Nephi when it mentions that Satan is bound during the millennium largely because people give him no power, they pay him no heed? Like that beautiful George Q. Cannon quote we shared at the end of last week's lesson, that if we can bind Satan in our own home by not listening to him, not paying attention to his temptations. And in so doing, we've ushered in a foretaste, a preview of coming attractions of what the millennium will all be about. And yet the moment we choose to listen to him, we've loosed him. And that seems to be the case, at least in part, with a resurrection at the end of the millennium. It may also be one last test for all those who have grown up through the millennium, and yet a different kind of test than what we experienced throughout mortality. You see, in mortality, it's a test of faith as well as a test of obedience. We're being tested in our knowledge, our understanding. Do we believe in things without having proof of everything? Can we exercise faith before perfect knowledge comes to eliminate the possibility of exercising that faith? We've talked about that several times too. But imagine living with Christ during this thousand-year reign. Lack of knowledge will no longer be an excuse on our part. We've had the proof. Every knee has bowed and every tongue confessed that Jesus is the Christ. We know better, and yet will we still follow him? Again, in this life, we sometimes try to excuse our lack of righteous behavior by chalking it up to a lack of perfect knowledge. If only I knew perfectly, then of course I would perfectly obey. Well, Satan being loosed at the end of the millennium is going to cure us of that delusion if we're suffering under it. And honestly, in my case at least, I don't have to wait that long. There are plenty of times, sadly, where my behavior does not live up to my beliefs that I sin even when I know better. Paul talks about this and laments over it in his own case in the book of Romans. And I think we all can resonate with that. And admittedly, our knowledge is not perfect in this life, but it will be then. And yet still will we be grappling with the natural man when it has its chance to rise from the grave, so to speak, at the end of the millennium? 
No more chance to excuse ourselves because we were wandering aimlessly in the dark. No, by then the lights have been on for a thousand years. Have we reconciled our wills fully to God's during that time period? So that when the opportunity to sin has represented itself, that we are so accustomed, we develop so many righteous reflexes, that we're not drawn in that direction at all. In a way, I think that's one of the lessons that Mormon is trying to teach us in this short book that he writes of his own life's experience. He's living in that age, that little season post-mini-millennium where Satan is having free reign among his people and leads the Nephite civilization down to destruction. Satan wants to do the same thing to us. If we can learn from Mormon, follow the lessons that he teaches us, then we'll be able to navigate that little season and more importantly, the season that we find ourselves in today, because there are incredible parallels between the two. Those last days of death and darkness and destruction right before the second coming and that similar time period of that little season in which Satan is loosed at the end of the millennium. Now, usually in the church, we refer to those two time periods of war and destruction and wickedness by two different names. We usually call the wars leading up to the second coming as Armageddon and the war at the very end of it all as the Battle of Gog and Magog. Now, distinguishing them by two different names can be helpful for us in keeping the two separate. And yet, in the scriptures, there's a lot of overlap between the two. And I think there's good reason for that, so that we can learn from one and have insight and understanding into the other. You see, in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, Ezekiel is prophesying of Armageddon, basically, the battles of the wicked versus the righteous before the coming of Christ. But he calls it the battle of Gog and Magog. You see, Magog is a term that refers to the nations, and Gog is its king. So when you think about Gog and Magog, you don't have to think of a specific kind of geopolitical entity, but rather the kingdoms of this world that will eventually become the kingdoms of our Christ once he overcomes them. So it's those battles, the defeat of the wicked, when Jesus Christ returns to the earth as his second coming. That's what Ezekiel is talking about in 38 and 39. He calls it Gog and Magog. Now, in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, which we were just looking at, John the Beloved, John the Revelator, is looking forward to the final loosing of Satan. But notice what he calls it in that chapter. When he says that the thousand years are expired and Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, he says he shall go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. So again, Gog and Magog is a symbol referring to the nations of the earth and their leaders. We could call it Babylon. We could call it Egypt. We could call it Idumea. In fact, the scriptures use all of those. This one, he, John, happens to be using Gog and Magog. They're all symbolic of the wicked world that we are meant to overcome through Christ. But you see what John is doing? He's using that example of Armageddon, the battles before the second coming of Christ, and making them as a parallel to the battle that comes at the end of it all, at the end of the millennium. He repeats the name given to the first by Ezekiel to label the second that he's talking about. That can tend to some confusion as far as which one are we talking about, which again is why in the church we separate the two and one is Armageddon and the other is Gog and Magog. But the kinds of opposition that we face, the kinds of things that we're going to need to overcome are similar, which is why John is trying to help us see that parallel. And it's that parallel that, in my opinion, makes the Book of Mormon within the Book of Mormon so applicable. Even though it comes post-millennium and we are living pre-millennium, 
what he faces in those final battles are similar to the kinds of things that we are facing in our battles in the latter days. I hope that makes sense. Also, one other thing to consider in all of this, I had mentioned there's one set that happens before the millennium and one set that happens at the end with a lot of similarities between the two. Now, there's actually a technical term that I want to introduce to us. Uh, we talk about millennialism, about that belief in the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. It's right there in the 10th article of faith. But within Christianity, there's a difference between what is called premillennialism and postmillennialism. Now, don't fall asleep on me here. In either case, it talks about the coming of Jesus Christ, but the timing of his coming in relation to the millennium. So premillennialism believes that Jesus Christ comes at the beginning of the millennium to usher it in. Postmillennialism believes that Jesus Christ comes at the end of the millennium, kind of to accept it and kind of put the cherry on top. And within those two perspectives, it's interesting to see the differences that premillennialism is in a way, I guess you could say pessimistic, others would say it's realistic, and it's the idea that Things are going so horribly wrong, we cannot fix it on our own. Jesus Christ has to come and intervene to clean up the mess that we've made of society. He's the one that binds Satan. He's the one that casts him out and throws him in the bottomless pit. He's the one that brings in this millennial reign. As opposed to post-millennialists that are more optimistic, that's one way to say it, or have a little bit more faith in humanity's ability to make these changes, to usher in the millennium ourselves and by so doing, invite Christ to come and participate. The idea of postmillennialism is largely, will we be able to achieve peace on earth? Will we be able to achieve social justice? And as a result, that is the spirit of Christ returning to the earth. That is his second coming. And in that millennial reign of peace, Christ can then return. Now, by and large, within Protestantism, for example, conservative Protestants tend to be premillennialists. And liberal Protestants tend to be post-millennialists. The first group is waiting for the rapture. And the second group is pursuing social justice. And there are strengths and weaknesses to both perspectives. Which begs the question, which are we as Latter-day Saints? Now, if we're being technical as far as chronology is concerned, we would say we are premillennialists. We do believe that Jesus Christ will come personally upon the earth and usher in the millennium. That he will bind Satan that we need all the help we can get, divine help, and there are certain things of which we are simply incapable on our own. However, are we simply sitting around and waiting for Jesus to intervene? Or are we working towards the kind of lion and lamb lying down together that the scriptures prophesy will come during that time period? You see, in a way, Latter-day Saints are this beautiful proving of contraries this combination of the best parts of both premillennialism and postmillennialism. Again, technically, as far as chronology is concerned, Jesus will come at the beginning and be here for that thousand years. But as far as how we're trying to approach that day and prepare the world for it, it's a beautiful combination of the two. We are trying to develop the faith of premillennialism and the works of postmillennialism. To trust that Jesus Christ will come and bind Satan. That's premillennialism. But also to live in such a way that we are binding him ourselves. That's more postmillennialism. That we have the realism of the premillennialists and the optimism of the postmillennialists. That we have the patience and hope and faith knowing that Jesus Christ will come. But also that we are rolling up our sleeves and working to prepare the world for that day. Gathering Israel on both sides of the veil. 
raising our voices in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord, to make straight in the desert a highway for our God. I say all that by way of introduction in hopes that we understand that what we see in Mormon's example and in his teachings in these chapters, even though his time period corresponds to that loosing of Satan at the end of the millennium, that it applies equally to those of us who are living now before the millennium. We have a war to win, a good fight to fight, and it's hard to ask for a better example of someone to follow through these dark days than Mormon himself. With all that in mind, let's pick up where we left off last week. The way 4th Nephi chapter 1 ends, you see Ammaron near the end of his life constrained by the Holy Ghost to hide up the records which were sacred. They'd been handed down from Nephi on down for the last 900 years plus, but not having anyone to whom he could pass the baton. Instead, he hides those records up unto the Lord. And here's why, that they might come again unto the remnant of the house of Jacob, according to the prophecies and the promises of the Lord. That's how Ammaron ends his record. They have to come forward someday. Remember, that's what Enos prayed for way back at the beginning of the Book of Mormon. It's what the Lord confirmed to him. Your fathers have required this thing of me. Strong verb, to require of God. This book eventually has to come forth. You get that sense each time the baton is passed. You see it beautifully in, in Alma, for example, passing the plates down to Helaman. This record has a role to play in the last days, in the gathering of Israel. We saw that throughout Third Nephi that the coming forth of the Book of Mormon is the sign that it's go time, that the Father has already begun his work, that his covenants are being kept, his prophecies and promises being fulfilled. And that's true faith, to take all those prophecies and promises and to bury the plates that they are referring to, to hide them up unto the Lord instead of pass them on to another mortal caretaker. Now, Amaron doesn't just completely leave it at that. As Mormon chapter 1 begins, verse 2 says that about the time that Ammaron hid up the records unto the Lord, he came unto me. Now Mormon says, I was about 10 years of age, but notice the details about him, because this is shocking. Ammaron is going to choose a 10-year-old to run the next leg in the relay. Now I know the Lord likes to work with the youth. You get a David or a Samuel. You get an Esther or a Mary. You get a Joseph Smith. Here you get a Mormon. But 10 years old? When was the last time you watched the primary program and kept your eye on the tallest boys or girls in the back? They typically were a little embarrassed to sing with the little kids. But can you imagine spotting a 10-year-old in the group that you would consider able to fulfill a mission that has been passed down for the last 900 years plus? The most important not just cultural artifact, but gift of God, instrument in his hands for the gathering of Israel, the collective memory of your civilization. And you're going to give it to somebody who hasn't even graduated from primary yet? Are you kidding me? Yes, all respect to Paul, who said, let no man despise thy youth. But even that word youth might be getting ahead of ourselves. This is a kid, 10 years old. But notice how Amaron describes him or at least how Mormon describes himself, which is what Amaron perceived in him. I being about 10 years of age, and I began to be learned somewhat after the manner of the learning of my people. Important trait. 
not just a matter of education or intelligence, but of understanding how his people tick, to be an astute observer of their behavior, their characteristics, how they fit into the long flow of history. It's not just a matter of knowing the gospel, which is what we're supposed to be, but knowing kind of boots on the ground, what are people actually like? What's the difference or distance between the two? Then the verse ends that Amaron said unto this ten-year-old, I perceive that thou art a sober child and art quick to observe. See, now you see perceptiveness on both sides. Amaron is perceiving that Mormon is perceptive. Amaron is observing that Mormon is quick to observe. And Elder Bednar has taught about that phrase. It can mean both observing the commandments of God. He's an obedient young man. That would be suggested also by the, the phrase that he is a sober child. Remember Alma uses that word in his discussions with all three of his sons back in the book of Alma, encouraging all of them to be sober. That doesn't mean to, to lay off the alcohol. It's to be serious about serious things, which again is a lot to ask for a 10-year-old. But to see this is a young boy who understands, sure, I'm sure he has fun with his friends in primary, but he also knows when to take sacred things seriously. He's dependable. He's trustworthy. He's going to get the job done. But the second half of that word, as Elder Bednar taught, is that he was observant, that he had a discerning eye, that he paid attention to things and could get a sense of what is going on in the world around him. Now, with all of that potential, Mormon is still not ready to actually take the baton in hand. So, Amaron says in verse 3, When ye are about twenty and four years old, so you're incredible now, but there's still some time, some growing up that needs to take place. When you're 24, give or take, I would that ye should remember the things that ye have observed concerning this people. So you're going to take your learning, you're going to take your observation, and you're going to remember these things for the next decade and a half. And when ye are of that age, go to the land Antum unto a hill which shall be called Shem, and there have I deposited unto the Lord all the sacred engravings concerning this people. Now, there's going to be all kinds of records there. Remember, Mormon is the one that keeps lamenting. I cannot include in this abridgment even 1%, not even the 100th part. So Amaron tells him, just take the plates of Nephi unto yourself. All the remainder, leave in the place where they are. And then on those plates of Nephi, you'll engrave all the things that you have observed concerning this people. So I hope your memory serves you well. Remember what you've seen and write it down. Is it starting to make a little more sense why it would be Mormon that so frequently interrupts his own narrative, looks out into the camera, breaks the fourth wall, and says, and thus we see. I'm so grateful that I'm being coached along in terms of what I should be seeing in Scripture by someone as sober, as observant, as discerning as Mormon was. I hope I'm seeing those things that he intends me to see. It's what's going to help me navigate my own life. Well, in Mormon's case, imagine holding on to this mission call for the next 14 years plus. In verse 5, it says that he remembered the things which Amaron commanded him. Do we do that? Or do we sometimes unintentionally or even intentionally choose to forget some of the responsibilities we know the Lord has placed upon our shoulders? Do we try to conveniently forget some of the specific things our patriarchal blessing tells us or impressions that we've received through the Holy Ghost over the years? 
Or do we live up to those divine expectations? Do we remember the things that God has commanded us and prepare ourselves for whatever future rendezvous we might hold with the divine destiny God has placed before us? Now in verse 6, something happens that seems to get in the way of that eventual rendezvous. He's now 11, but he is carried by his father into the land southward, even to the land of Zarahemla. Now, if his father is taking him south, then he must have been living in the land northward, which we don't hear about quite as often in the Book of Mormon. But it's in the land northward where you'll find the hill Shim, where the records are deposited, where you'll find the hill Cumorah, where the final battles will take place. So in some ways, as far as Mormon meeting his date with destiny, stay up in the land northward. That's where all the important things in your life are going to take place. So, Dad, what are you doing? Why are you moving me further away from the place where my mission needs to culminate? And yet, if he's supposed to be observing what is taking place among his people, as well as getting the whole historical trajectory of Nephite civilization, what better place to do it than in the land of Zarahemla? That's where most of the action in the Book of Mormon has taken place. I think that's an important principle for us to consider. That sometimes in life, what seems like a step in the wrong direction, I'm moving away from the goals that I've set for myself or the things that I believe God intends for me. And yet sometimes, again, if we're following the Holy Ghost in this, what seems like a step in the wrong direction may end up being the perfect move towards being able to fulfill the missions that God would have you accomplish. In my own case, When the church first approached me and said, we want you to move to Nashville, Tennessee to run the institute program there, I thought, this is a step in the wrong direction. I honestly wondered, did did you not get my memo with the graduate programs I've been looking into and the kinds of places I need to go to be able to do what I feel the Lord would have me accomplish? And yet, honestly, within 24 hours of initial shock and awe passing, thinking, "Uh uh-oh, Dad, you're moving me in the wrong direction, I realized this is better than anything I had intended for myself. That what I thought at first was a step backwards, in reality was a huge leap forward in becoming better prepared to be an instrument in the hands of God. It was one of several times in my life where I have later prayed, thank you, Father, for not listening to me. I have a feeling that Mormon could say something similar to his own father. Thanks for taking me away from this land northward, where the ultimate experiences in my life would take place to be able to take me into the thick of it all, Zarahemla itself, the best possible place for me to be able to perform the mission that I've been given, to observe my people firsthand. Now, in the next few verses, we get a sense of what he's going to be observing in Zarahemla. And boy, is it applicable to what we are finding ourselves in in these last days. In verse 7, it describes the land of Zarahemla as having been covered with buildings and the people as numerous almost as the sand of the sea. He is facing urbanization, a concentration of population. In short, Mormon is learning how to live the gospel in an urban, secular, diverse world. Sound like the world you and I are living in, largely? In verses 8 through 12, He starts to describe war taking place between the Nephites and the Lamanites. And it's war that will continue throughout Mormon's entire life. He is learning and preparing to teach us how to live the gospel during times of unrest, of violence, of wars and rumors of wars. Then in verse 13 and 14, it talks about wickedness prevailing upon the face of the whole land. 
the Lord taking away his beloved disciples, the work of miracles and of healings ceasing because of the iniquity of the people. 14, he continues, there were no gifts from the Lord and the Holy Ghost did not come upon any because of their wickedness and unbelief. Think about what that last phrase conveys. A time of wickedness and unbelief. That combines both poor behaviors, wickedness, and poor beliefs, the unbelief. There are problems in both their actions as well as their attitudes. This is a time of both iniquity and false ideology. How people are living and the kinds of things people are learning. You get a sense of relevance and applicability to what we're facing in our day. A time of wickedness and unbelief. There is a loss of righteous leadership in society. The absence of miracles, the loss of spiritual gifts, people not being able to feel the Holy Ghost in their lives. Having that still small voice drowned out by louder voices. What is Mormon learning to do? To borrow a phrase from Brigham Young, he's learning to live the gospel in the dark. To be a tiny minority, a congregation of one in many instances. It reminds me of the beautiful phrase that Paul uses in Philippians that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Mormon will be that kind of light, shining in darkness. He's learned to live the gospel in the dark. Who better to teach us to do likewise? Now back to Mormon chapter 1, in verse 15, notice what we learn about him. In the midst of a cultural context that has lost its view of divinity, Mormon gets a chance to see it and experience it clearly. I, being 15 years of age and being somewhat of a sober mind, remember that was one of the things that Amaron had noticed in him, therefore I was visited of the Lord and tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus. What a diamond in the rough. He tasted of Christ's goodness. He knew it. You get a sense of both the mind and the heart. He knew of the goodness of Jesus. There's his intellect, but he tasted of it. There's his experience. Remember both of the two famous trees in the Garden of Eden? One was knowledge and the other was life and love. Mormon is eating from both trees. He doesn't just intellectually know of the goodness of Jesus. He's experientially tasted of it. It is becoming more and more essential for each of us to be able to have similar experiences, to be sober enough that we can take seriously the kinds of things that the world tends to mock and ridicule, to live in such a way that we can be visited of the Lord in whatever way he chooses to manifest himself to us, to study the gospel well enough that we can know of the goodness of Jesus and to live it well enough that we can taste of that goodness and love. It's combining both the head and the heart here that will keep us balanced through the latter days. Now having had those experiences in 15, what's he want to do in 16? He wants to spread the word. I did endeavor to preach unto this people, but my mouth was shut. I was forbidden that I should preach unto them. Unlike most of us that need to be commanded to go share what we know, he's commanded not to. Why? Because the people had willfully rebelled against their God. The beloved disciples were taken away out of the land. It's not just that they left, they were removed. 
and all that because of the people's iniquity. This willful rebellion, it's as if the Nephites had wanted to live without God in the world. And so, God let them. You will not hear my voice, then I will close my mouth. You will not accept my servants, then I will remove them from you. I'll give you exactly what you want and see how that goes. And yet Mormon isn't taken from among the people. He's asked to stay. Verse 17, I did remain among them, but I was forbidden to preach unto them because of the hardness of their hearts. And because of the hardness of their hearts, the land was cursed for their sake. You see, for you to be able to record the history of this people, for you to observe them, you will have to stay. But for now at least, I want you to open your eyes, not your mouth. Now in chapter 2, verse 1, we're reminded just how young Mormon is. I was young, but I was large in stature. Therefore, the people of Nephi appointed me that I should be their leader or the leader of their armies. Therefore, it came to pass that in my 16th year, I did go forth at the head of an army of the Nephites against the Lamanites. That's almost insane to me. It's one thing to choose a promising 10-year-old primary kid to eventually record the history of your people. But to put a 16-year-old or if he's in his 16th year, then probably a 15-year-old in charge of the army? The Nephites are either scraping the bottom of the barrel, or, and this is more likely, they too perceive something in Mormon. And I would suggest it goes far beyond the height of his stature. So often leadership comes down to the intangibles. Yes, you're bigger than most. That's good, even for a 15-year-old. But they must have seen something in him that inspired their confidence. And even though they weren't worthy to receive the message that he would have shared with them, they cannot help but notice the way he lives his life. I find it so interesting that often the very things that a non-believer would, would laugh at or mock or ridicule a believer for are the exact things that draw them to that person to begin with. It's like what many skeptics have said about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In fact, I think Charles Dickens was one of the first to, to make this point, that what Latter-day Saints do is impressive. What they believe seems insane. And yet what we do is an outgrowth of what we believe. Our behaviors grow out of our beliefs. People notice the difference, even if they are unwilling to admit the source of those differences. For the rest of the chapters we're going to study today, we will see Mormon leading the Nephite army. There's a brief time where he refuses to. We'll see why in a moment. But from here on out, it is war. And it is our chance to learn from Mormon himself the kinds of lessons he would teach them and would teach us of how to fight the good fight, even when righteousness and the righteous themselves seem to be dwindling. The first thing we see in verse 3 is the Lamanites coming upon the Nephites with such exceedingly great power that they did frighten Mormon's armies. Therefore, they would not fight, and they began to retreat towards the north countries. Not a very auspicious beginning to Mormon's term as commander-in-chief. But it's not his fault. How do you lead an army that has become a slave to fear? How do you lead people into battle that refuse to fight, that would rather turn tail and run? Well... Perhaps the first step is to not let their attitudes color your own. 
as we live through dark days, are we becoming slaves to fear? For as Paul said in his own dark days, God has not given us the spirit of fear. Do we retreat or are we willing to defend the cause of Christ as Captain Moroni described it? Do we retreat or do we defend the things that must be defended? Are we willing to fight the good fight? Now in verse 4, he's able to convince them to begin making preparations to defend themselves in another city. They do attempt to fortify that city, but notwithstanding all their fortifications, the Lamanites came and drove them out. And I can't help but think that the attitudes of verse 3 are what offset the actions of verse 4. Even if you are preparing and fortifying, but doing those things out of fear, without the faith to stand firm, then those things will be insufficient against the kind of enemy that we are facing. In verse 8, we notice this important detail. Behold, the land was filled with robbers and with Lamanites, and notwithstanding the great destruction which hung over my people, they did not repent of their evil doings. No wonder there is blood and carnage spreading throughout all the face of the land. No wonder it's one complete revolution everywhere you look, because there is no repentance taking place. President Hinckley was right in what he said in that first conference shortly after 9-11, that our safety lies in our repentance. Our security is found in keeping the commandments of God. No amount of outward fortification and preparation can compensate for the lack of internal repentance that has to take place if we are to claim the blessings of God to help us navigate these dark days. There will always be revolution without if there is not repentance within. In verse 10, we see that the Nephites began to repent of their iniquity, which might give us some hope, but keep reading. They began to cry even as had been prophesied by Samuel the prophet. And here's what they were crying about, that no man could keep that which was his own for the thieves and the robbers and the murderers and the magic art and the witchcraft which was in the land. We see a similar list of iniquity back at the end of chapter 1. Sorceries and witchcrafts and magics and the power of the evil one. In a way, those things don't seem to be as applicable today. Sorcery and witchcraft and magic. But think of it in these terms. Do we sometimes try to acquire things in the wrong way? I don't want to have to work for anything. I'd rather have the blessings of life, prosperity itself, just magically appear. And when I prove unable to hold on to those things, isn't there some kind of spell I could cast to be able to hold on to them? No. Remember what Samuel had prophesied of? That things would become slippery, that they'd be so focused on the blessings themselves rather than the source of those blessings, grateful for the one but entirely ignorant of the other, that they would lose them. Exactly what's happening here. See, back in chapter 1, verse 18, these Gadianton robbers who were among the Lamanites, they infested the land. Interesting word choice there, as if there's some kind of plague, some kind of vermin that's infesting the land. The inhabitants thereof began to hide up their treasures in the earth, and they became, here's our word, slippery. They just couldn't hold on to them because the Lord had cursed the land that they could not hold them nor retain them again. That's the thing that the Nephites are, quote-unquote, repenting of. I can't hold on to my stuff. All my ill-gotten gains are going up in smoke before me, or 
slipping through my fingers. Chapter 2, verse 11, that's the cause of this mourning and lamentation in all the land. And is that real repentance? I mean, the words seem to be appearing. Repent in 10, mourning and lamentation in 11. Those are some of the outward signs we might be looking for to see a repentant people. But look in verse 12. It came to pass that when I Mormons saw their lamentation and their mourning and their sorrow before the Lord, my heart did begin to rejoice within me. Their sorrow led to his rejoicing. Because again, he noticed the outward kinds of things you would expect in a heart that is becoming broken or a spirit that is becoming contrite. But that was just the outward. You see, in that moment of rejoicing, Mormon had all the hope in the world that things would improve because he knew the mercies and the long-suffering of the Lord. Remember, he'd already known and tasted of Christ's goodness. Therefore, supposing that he would be merciful unto them, that they would again become a righteous people, he's thinking, this is perfect. We finally hit rock bottom and they're ready to turn around and turn back to the Lord. However, verse 13, that outward repentance was only skin deep. Behold, this my joy was vain. For their sorrowing was not unto repentance because of the goodness of God, but it was rather the sorrowing of the damned because the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness in sin. You see, this was not what Paul called godly sorrow. This is what Mormon calls the sorrowing of the damned. This is sorrow in getting caught, not sorrow in doing the deed. This is sorrow in the consequence, not in the original action. This is not becoming sorrowful over one's sins, but becoming sorrowful that one's sins no longer made them happy. Isn't that how he ends it? The Lord would not suffer them to take happiness in sin, at least not over the long run. That is a source of sorrow to the sinful. When they realize that those things that I was doing, the the coping mechanisms I was using to try to drown out this guilty conscience, that's not working anymore. No wonder drug addicts have to keep going deeper and deeper. No wonder those involved in pornography or other kinds of things. It has to get stronger and stronger to drown out the realization, that sinking feeling, that this is emptiness, that Alma was right after all, that wickedness never was happiness. At least, it could never stay happiness. Eventually, we see its true colors. The difference in those sorrows is worth contemplating. There's a powerful phrase that Paul uses back in 2 Corinthians about godly sorrow. And the way he defines it is so beautiful. He says in 2 Corinthians 6, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. No wonder Mormon calls it the sorrow of the damned. For behold, this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, notice the results of it. You may not be able to tell what kind of sorrow it is at the beginning. Again, Mormon mistook it. But notice the results of this godly kind of sorrow. What carefulness it wrought in you. And not just careful not to get caught next time. Careful not to recommit the sin. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. I love that list. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. In all the church disciplinary councils I've been a part of, 
over three different bishoprics in the last 20 years. It is the presence of godly sorrow that I am most interested in seeing. Without it, there's no carefulness, there's no fear, there's no vehement desire, there's no zeal, no revenge. In short, there's no clearing of yourself. You're more likely to commit the same sin that got you into the mess in the first place, which is exactly what's going to happen with Mormon's people. But with godly sorrow, broken hearts and contrite spirits, we change. We change because we want to. We start sensing the goodness of Jesus. We start coming to know his mercies and long-suffering. We start to again become a righteous people. Again, what's the flip side? Verse 14, they did not come unto Jesus with broken hearts and contrite spirits. Instead, they did curse God and wish to die. Nevertheless, they would struggle with the sword for their lives. That's such an interesting juxtaposition. They're cursing God rather than turning to him. They wish they could die, and yet simultaneously they are fighting to live. Remember that beautiful phrase in the song, Old Man River? I wish I could drop my voice about two octaves and sing it for you. I'll save you that pain. But what's he say? I'm tired of living, but scared of dying. That seems to describe these Nephites to a T. I'm tired of living. I can no longer find happiness in sin. I just wish I could die. But death scares me also. So I'll fight physically to avoid death. But I refuse to fight spiritually to choose life. You get a sense of where this, this difficult middle space where these people find themselves. Fear on one side, but no hope on the other. Compare that to what faith does and what righteousness does. It brings hope to life, and it brings courage in the face of death. I'm not tired of living, and I'm not scared of dying. That's the place I want to be. In verse 15, Mormon says, It came to pass that my sorrow did return unto me again. You see, he'd felt some as well, and his was godly sorrow. Remember, we learned that from the three Nephites? That even if you can overcome death itself and pain, you'll never be able to avoid sorrow over the sins of the world. And that's the kind of sorrow that Mormon is feeling. He had switched it out for rejoicing for a moment in verse 12 when he thought their sorrow was godly. Once he realized that it was not, then his sorrow returned unto him again. I think another way to think about that phrase is sending out our sorrow, trying to mourn with those that mourn so that we can then comfort those that stand in need of comfort. Or to express our devastation over sin in hopes that it jumpstarts, that it awakens someone else, the, the guilty party themselves, to a recognition of exactly what they've done. Again, Mormon is a sober person. He takes serious things seriously. To me, the hardest memories of those disciplinary councils is when I feel worse about the sin than the person who committed it. And there's times I just wish I could take my heart out, my troubled, broken heart, and put it in their bodies so they could understand for a moment, do you have any idea what you've done to yourself, to the Lord, to others? I can't be the one most devastated about what's been done. And I have seen at times sharing my sorrow, trying to explain, give scriptural examples of people who truly had godly sorrow, just trying to awaken within the person 
Do you understand how serious this sin is that you've committed? I'm not trying to guilt trip. That's not what I'm saying at all. But simply to help get them past the, the anesthesia and amnesia that Satan always seems to administer whenever he pokes us with the syringe of sin. Have you noticed he's so good at that? The moment he tries to get us to sin, he tries to deaden the pain of it and to lessen the memory of previous experiences. Amnesia and anesthesia always seem to come together, but they wear off. And so as, I, as I've tried to send out my sorrow, there are times it does awaken another person to a sense of their sin. In fact, that's typically when I'm most awake to my own sinfulness, when I get a sense of God's sorrow, the ultimate godly sorrow over things that I've done, when I get to see Jesus in Gethsemane, when I try to watch with him one hour, then his sorrow wakes up my own and does not return unto him empty-handed. I think that's what I'm getting at with that phrase at the beginning of verse 15. To send out his sorrow and it returned unto Mormon empty-handed. It did nothing to anyone. I hope that we can send out our sorrow and have it return to us with fruit. That God's godly sorrow can bring out something in our own, not return empty-handed. In Mormon's case, the verse continues, I saw that the day of grace was passed with them, both temporally and spiritually. I saw thousands of them hewn down in open rebellion against their God, heaped up as dung upon the face of the land. A pretty stark simile there. Heaped up as dung? All because the day of grace was passed with them. Later, we'll see Mormon use the phrase that the Spirit ceases to strive with man. He stopped fighting with us because we refused to stop fighting with him. The day of grace has passed because we wouldn't accept it. We wouldn't yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. Just put your dukes down and accept the grace that I'm offering you. Use the time that you have been granted, the time that's been prolonged, for you to repent. Now jump ahead to 16 and 17. Again, there's no godly sorrow, therefore their sorrow is not inviting God to be a part of anything moving forward. Now they're just in full retreat. But the further they retreat, the closer they get to Mormon's rendezvous with the hill Shim where these records are deposited. Again, interesting that his father's move took him away from the area where his mission was supposed to take place. And yet performing the mission that became his in Zarahemla eventually brings him back into contact or proximity with the plates. So in 17, Mormon does what Amron had told him to do years and years before. He takes the plates of Nephi in order to continue the record. And then he says in verse 18, Upon the plates of Nephi, I did make a full account of all the wickedness and abominations, but upon these plates, I didn't. I did forbear to make a full account of their wickedness and abominations. Why? Because a continual scene of wickedness and abominations has been before mine eyes ever since I have been sufficient to behold the ways of man. Wow, this makes Nephi's lament back in the book of Helaman pale in comparison. These are my days... Well, if anybody could lament over that, it would be Mormon. He's recording both a full account to keep with the abundance of records that are there in the hill, but also on these plates, these 
plates of Nephi. He's giving us the shortened version. Shortened and somewhat sanitized, I would suggest. What he's beholding and living through is even worse than what we're reading. And what's his reaction? His own godly sorrow over sins that he's not committing. In verse 19, Woe is me because of their wickedness. My heart has been filled with sorrow because of their wickedness all my days. See the difference between mine and theirs? But he's feeling what they should be. Nevertheless, he ends that verse, I know that I shall be lifted up at the last day. It's not himself that he's worried about. He's worried about them. He knows he's going to make it, but it's his people that he's worried about. Now, he does his best to lead them. In verse 23, if you jump ahead, I did speak unto my people and did urge them with great energy that they would stand boldly before the Lamanites and fight. Fight for what? This is Mormon's version of the title of liberty. It is somewhat similar to Captain Moroni's version, but what is missing is what stands out. At the end of 23, Mormon is encouraging his people to fight for their wives and their children and their houses and their homes. The people closest to you and your own possessions. Compare it to Captain Moroni's title of liberty and what were they fighting for? Yes, their wives and their children. But that's the end of the list. What Captain Moroni was really wanting his people to fight for was in memory of our God, our religion, our freedom, our peace, and yes, of course, the people that mean the most to us. But do you see that that's all Mormon has to work with? They won't fight for God. They're only fighting against him. They won't fight for their religion. They've lost it. They won't even fight for their freedom or their peace. They just want their own belongings, those slippery things, their houses and homes, along with the families that live there with them. Now, it was better than nothing. They would fight for those things. There was just such a higher cause and higher call that they weren't willing to respond to. Verse 24, my words did arouse them somewhat to vigor. At least they stopped fleeing. They stood with boldness against them. And in verse 25, it speaks of them standing with firmness as well. And it was enough. Enough for that battle, at least. In 26, they met the Lamanite army and beat them. But then this sad realization on Mormon's part. Nevertheless, the strength of the Lord was not with us. Yea, we were left to ourselves that the Spirit of the Lord did not abide in us, therefore we had become weak like unto our brethren. We saw phrases like that in the war chapters and in early Helaman. We saw it in the book of Judges when it talked about Samson finally breaking his covenants and cutting his hair. It was my covenant keeping that made me different because it's what allowed God to participate in my life. That's the whole pride cycle. What is it that makes us go from pride to destruction? We've abandoned God. We didn't think we needed him. We stopped noticing his hands behind the prosperity that he was offering us. And once devoid of that divine assistance, then we totally are on our own. And we're not much. The Nephites never beat the Lamanites in terms of physical strength or numbers alone. They couldn't match the Lamanites for that. But the secret of their success was always their spiritual strength. The fact that God was willing and able to participate with them. But no longer. His strength was not with them. And left without it, they were no stronger or better than anyone else. Verse 27, Mormon's heart did sorrow because of this, the great calamity of my people. 
Wait, calamity? You just won. You aroused them somewhat to vigor. Your, your pep talk worked, Mormon. You got a victory under your belt. And Mormon is saying, no, it is still calamity. Because this victory is never going to last. Just like we saw earlier that we can't continue to take happiness in sin. Well, we're not going to keep winning wars on our own strength. We don't have much. The calamity he's talking about is not what's taking place on the battlefield. Because finally, they had some good news from the battlefield. The calamity he referred to in 27 was their wickedness and their abominations. And that would ultimately spell disaster, no matter how many intermediate successes they could enjoy. By the end of chapter 2, the Lamanites establish a treaty. Fine, we'll, we'll be peaceful. But again, it's only a matter of time where that's going to fall apart. And sure enough, as chapter 3 begins, the Lamanites are preparing for battle.